0: This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm Jonathan. Your time is your greatest currency, make no mistake, and this fact of life does not go unnoticed by the creators on whom you spend your time, so thank you. Thank you for spending your time listening and learning along with me on this podcast. Please note that the best growth tool for podcasts like this one is word of mouth. If you believe in what's being said and strived for here, please consider pushing this out to all corners of your social media, as well as leaving five-star five, five star reviews, multiple even, on whatever podcast service you use. Links for this podcast are in the show notes. The Eastern Roman Empire was struggling in 1056. Empress Theodora lay on her deathbed with no successor chosen. It was time for a change. It's been a long night for the Byzantines, And it was time to be woken up from their two decade long nightmare. But would her successor be that awakening? Or would her successor prompt the much needed awakening? It's one or the other here, folks. Today, episode 102 is entitled The Reluctant Rebel. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. It was clear to everyone inside Constantinople and a, a great many people outside the city limits across the realm that the political direction of the empire was, well, wasn't was really on a great trajectory. Those closer to the center were well aware that the leadership carousel had turned into an embarrassing charade. John Carr, in his book The Komneni Dynasty, writes, quote, in the 32 years since the death of the great Basil the Bulgar Slayer, eight emperors and empresses had come and gone in a maelstrom of intrigue, chicanery, and scandal that would have taxed the abilities even of seasoned palaced hands to keep the state mechanism on an even keel, End quote. Now, a man named Michael Sellos, by this time around 40 years old or so, was one of those, quote-unquote, palace handlers, who, as Carr says later in his book, well, he wasn't exactly phased by much in those days. Cellus was on the inside of so much of those 32 years since Basil II. Up to the year 1056, he'd become acclimated to that maelstrom of palace intrigue and politicking. He was unflappable, so when... On August 31st, 1056, he received word that Empress Theodora had died right there on the palace grounds. Now, he probably took that in the same stride as he's taken everything else. I mean, poor Theodora was already well into old age at that point, and that's to say nothing of the intensely painful intestinal issues that seem to have been, well, sucking the life right out of her with every breath she exhaled. Being the chronicler that he was, Celus’s mind immediately went to the succession. Being a valued insider by many inside the circle of imperial politics, he knew that Theodora refused to name a successor before she passed away. Nor would she agree to marry, regardless how meaningless the marriage was. She was serious all those years ago about wanting to remain a nun and be married to her faith and her faith alone. Just a couple days earlier, while Theodora lay in agony on the other side of the imperial palace, Michael Sellos sat in as a recorder of a semi-secret meeting of all the big guns in Byzantine court to discuss the matter of succession. If she wouldn't address the situation, well... Those who were left after her passing would just take care of it themselves and pin their decision on her. They needed to prepare for anything. There were simply too many powerful financiers and military generals around to leave the seat of emperor to the whims of chance. Those in attendance at this meeting, a meeting led by Theodore's most trusted advisor and chief minister, a man named Leo Perispondilos, decided to elevate a semi-wealthy and influential, though in the grand scheme of things, kind of a mid-level aristocrat, named Michael Bringus to the throne of the empire. Leo Perispondilos brought this matter up to the 76-year-old Theodora as she slipped in and out of agonizing consciousness, and he decided that She happened to nod just enough for him to conclude that she agreed with the committee's choice of successor. Thus, Michael Bringus became Emperor Michael VI the moment Theodora exhaled her last faint breath, again on August thirty-first, 1056. Now, Michael VI was no visionary. Let's not even pretend otherwise. He was stolid and harsh, and was nothing more than a plaything of the super-wealthy and elite of the empire. I you know we got a few of those walking around the world these days, don't we? Now, Celus makes it clear that his single best quality that made him a prime candidate was how easily he was to manipulate by other wealthy and influential bureaucrats. And speak of the devil, it's no wonder how Leo Perspondilos retained his role as the new emperor's chief minister. But Michael VI's reign was immediately challenged in September to October of 1056, when a rather dangerous conspiracy was hatched, and nearly executed actually, by a nephew of the former Emperor Constantine IX, Monomachus. Now folks loyal to the new emperor displayed lightning-fast reflexes upon catching wind of it, and the conspiracy was quickly snuffed out, and those at the head of it were quickly dispatched, both literally and figuratively. Now, unfortunately, Michael VI was inher- he also inherited an issue that was several years old, an issue having nothing to do with him, really. See, years earlier, under Theodore's watch, a powerful general named Nikephoros Bryennius led a small but threatening rebellion against the empress. Well, as Bryonius' ranks grew and grew, Theodora acted swiftly and immediately, and without even speaking to Bryonius to hear him out, she cut him off completely. She pulled his military rank as well as seized all, and I mean all, of his wealth and property. Anything not on his back, essentially. This harkens us back to when she quickly made the decision to have a Former emperor's eyes gouged out before her co-empress and sister could speak to her about it. One thing was crystal clear, Theodora was not to be messed with. So, by the time Michael Bringus donned the crown and became Michael VI, Bryanias had moved around the wings of the empire and was still in possession of a fair bit of influence and power. He appealed to have his rank and his estates and his wealth returned to him. Flushed with newfound power, Michael VI returned Bryanias' military rank. However, he refused to return the rest of the general stuff. And he didn't just write Bryennius a stern letter about it. Michael VI, he refused him publicly. What's more, is that Bryennius was humiliated during the audience and disrespectfully sent away. Bryennius, now out of the city, was fuming, as you can imagine, and he set to work upping the ante for rebellion against the crown. Within days, he received a letter stating that, well, you know, that division he was just given by the emperor? Yeah, about that. Uh, Michael VI changed his mind on that one too. <laughs> Oops. Michael VI's entire reign is summed up as a self-inflicted gunshot wound to his own legacy. This unnecessary tiff with Bryennius would lead to his downfall, but it wouldn't be Bryennius that would take him down. Way out in the outskirts of the empire, deep into Cappadocia, which is modern-day Turkey, the highlands there, Anatolia, was a force patrolling the fringes of the Eastern Roman Empire, fringes that had slowly but surely been pushing back toward Constantinople each and every year by the invading Turks from Central Asia. The general out there was an acquaintance of Bryanias, an old acquaintance. So when word reached him of the treatment, the newly reinstated general suffered from the new emperor. Well, this guy became acutely aware of how the military at large was going to be treated during the current reign. This general's name, way out there on the outskirts, fighting the Turks and keeping the borders safe, his name was Isaac Komnenos, and he quickly rode to Constantinople and pleaded his case to Emperor Michael VI himself, his case being the case of the necessary supplies, men, and payment to keep those borders safe. He reasoned that, listen, Bryanias was no friend of the imperial palace, given the history he had of rebellion. But maybe, maybe a loyal general like himself, like Isaac, might speak sense to the emperor and plead for, as I just said, more resources for the forces keeping the borders as secure as they were. The security in question was really lacking in the previous three decades, since the death of Basil II. But this new guy might be willing to listen and be brought up to speed about the sad, the sad state of things way out east. A group of steppe nomads, as I mentioned earlier, began migrating further and further west for decades at that point. No one knew exactly who they were or what seemed to push them toward the Eastern Roman Empire's lands, but it certainly helped that the real estate across modern-day Turkey was prime real estate for a horse-based society. The grasslands, ah, the grasslands, they stretched for hundreds of miles in all directions, and the higher elevations were similar to where they had already come from. Cappadocia was the steppe people's land of milk and honey, but it was still a land owned and operated and resided on by Romans and it was General Isaac Komnenos's job to keep these steppe people at bay. But the soldiers were lacking, and the resources were scarce, and let's not even mention the back pay owed to the men already in the emperor's service. It's been a long 30 years, if you remember. These were the issues that Isaac brought to the emperor during the early winter of 1056 to 1057. Whatever he was expecting from Michael VI, well, it didn't materialize. Carr tells us that, quote, instead, Michael peremptorily ordered Comnenos to stand before him and heaped abuse on him for supposedly mismanaging the Eastern campaign and helping himself to public money, all of which was quite untrue, end quote. In his famous book, Chronographia, Michael Sellos, remember, a contemporary, Michael Sellis writes, quote, When his fellow generals tried to defend him, the emperor forbade them to even speak. End quote. Isaac was berated for even daring to request more men, more resources, and most despicable more payment. Carr continues, quote, Comnenos, stunned, appears to have been given no chance to rebut the charges, and Michael dismissed them all from his presence end quote. The emperor needed five seconds with Isaac Komnenos before he knew exactly what he thought of him. The problem was, Isaac Komnenos was, how did Michael Sellis put it? Michael Sellis described Komnenos as a quote-unquote crusty general, and I love that. Now, Sellis had other things to say that were far, far more flattering of Isaac Komnenos, but the image of a quote-unquote crusty general reminds me of a man who'd, who'd seen things and who'd done things and who'd ordered things that would make the rest of us crawl back to our mommies. A man like that is someone you want on your side in a fight, as tough as it is to admit. He's not someone you alienate. He's not someone you ridicule. A man like that is who we all need making those tough, tough decisions that keep a community, or a nation, or an empire safe and secure. He instills fear, he earns respect, and he demonstrates a hard-earned love of his fellow warrior that is rarely equaled in relationships of all sorts. I'm reminded of, you know, famous American generals like George Washington, Andrew Jackson, Winfield Scott, Zachary Taylor, Stonewall Jackson, Ulysses S. Grant, Robert E. Lee, Joshua Chamberlain, William Tecumseh Sherman, Teddy Roosevelt, who was actually, I think, a captain, believe. He was never a general. But all the same. And finally, of course, (laughs) George Patton. My goodness, that guy. These men commanded others who would have laid down in traffic if they were ordered to, or even asked to, by their leaders. These men were profoundly beloved and respected by the soldiers under their command because they knew their general would stand beside them during the fight and they wouldn't needlessly endanger them or risk their lives carelessly. So think of someone you know of, especially if you're in another country. I'd love to hear who you thought of. Oh, and by the way, it just occurred to me. Here I am listing these you know, uh, generals uh, in American history. And I know that I'm going to have some little whiny person out there going, Why are you mentioning Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee? And uh, please, please, can you please save it? These were American generals. You don't have to agree with what they stood for and what they fought for. But come on, if you know your history, they were well beloved by their soldiers. So that's the angle I was going on. So. Just trying to head that one off at the pass. What a weird world we live in. So, again, I'd love to know some from your country. I, I'm all about learning from other places, but think of that crusty general. You know, others I happen to know that fit the description of the old stern yet beloved warrior are folks like you know, Field Marshal Monty Montgomery from the UK during World War II. And then you have Marshal George Zhukov from the Soviet Union, who held the eastern front line against the Nazis during World War II. These guys were very beloved. But we see this throughout history. Obviously, Isaac Komnenos and El Cid, remember that string of episodes we had on the podcast? These two were in the 11th century. But we also see it in other centuries, obviously, in figures like Richard the Lionheart, Saladin, Edward I, also called Edward Longshanks, Genghis Khan, even William Wallace. These were all figures who you just didn't want to mess with, men who had seen and done things that would give the rest of us several lifetimes of nightmares, and they were men who garnered an unbelievable amount of trust and respect and genuine love, in many cases, from their fellow warriors. Well, that's Isaac Komnenos, according to the records. So what goes into making someone like that? Well, we don't really know a great deal, to tell you the truth, about Isaac's early life. Uh, His family comes from a town we all believe, historians believe, uh, Komnen, which was a very small town in Thrace, which is, I believe, Thrace is the area currently occupied by the European side of Turkey. So across from uh, what was once Constantinople, Istanbul today. Uh, but he ended up making a life on the other side, and maybe we can talk about that in a second. His father, right, his father, named Manuel Eroticos Komnenos, was a Byzantine general mentioned only twice in all the records that have survived to us today. The first mention is due to Manuel's, Manuel Komnenos's successful defense of an important imperial center of Nicaea, in 978 against Bardas Scleros, and the second told of his role as an imperial envoy in 989. Other than that, Manuel died in 1020, and records emerged of his three children that gave more detail to their lives than he had. Now, Isaac, obviously, was one of these three. Upon Manuel's death, Isaac was given to none other than the emperor himself, which is a bit of a nod toward Manuel's high rank, you could say, status within the Byzantine court. Now, which emperor ruled in 1020, you ask? The one and only Basil II, the Bulgar Slayer. That's right. So Isaac and his brother John would spend the next five years until Basil's death learning from the greatest general and emperor in Constantinople's rather long recent history. Isaac's little brother John stayed by Isaac's side for the duration here and also was a pupil of Basil II. Over the ensuing two decades, Isaac and John worked their ways up through the complex and often dangerous world of Byzantine military and political systems. At the time, remember, the two systems were almost indistinguishable, even though both Komneni brothers seemed to want nothing to do with courtly games. Fuming behind a stoic mask across his face. Now we're back in 1056 again. Comnenos ordered his men to follow him straight to the Hagia Sophia after being rudely and disrespectfully dismissed and sent away by Emperor Michael VI. They were graciously welcomed by Patriarch Michael Serellarius, the same patriarch we've mentioned on the podcast a few times, who was just three years before this excommunicated by Pope Leo IX. Yeah, this whole thing between Michael VI and Isaac Comnenos happened in the wake of the Great Schism of 1054. Serolarius gave his powerful visitors privacy, rooms, food and drink that night, and this night would prove to be pivotal in Eastern Roman history. Carr gives us a great image of the scene here, quote, In the flickering candlelight, they debated who should lead the coup against the codger, end quote. Yeah, Michael VI was also called the codger, so it kind of shows you how people thought of him. So, it would find itself, indeed, pivotal, as the empire itself was at a crossroads. Empires, nations, communities, they can only endure so much ineptitude and corruption— before eventually snapping under its own rotten weight. Some say the United States may be slipping into such a collapse today. suppose time will tell, I can only say I hope not. <laughs> so, with Michael VI, the codger, at the helm of the empire, what was next? Well, now it's 1057. The people of the empire were at wit's end with the corruption and idiocy of its recent rulers save Theodora. Something had to give. Either they bust and shatter and become scattered to the violent winds of history, already hemmed in and pressured by poised foes on all sides. I'm thinking of the Cordoba Caliphate and all the Taifa kingdoms that popped up after the collapse of its central uh, central city. Or they can gain a leader A visionary with the empire itself in mind, not the emperor. Its people and its lands and its heritage and its culture in mind, not just the person, again, wearing the crown, who can by sheer force of will pull the whole enterprise back from the cliff. They currently had an emperor who wasted no time publicly disrespecting the very men he depended on to protect him and the realm. Was that the best course of action for an empire in immediate decline? Well, there was one other option. No, 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 no. They couldn't quite go that route yet. Isaac, for one, was firmly opposed to anything having to do with questioning the legitimacy of the emperor's claims to the throne. Isaac commanded the respect of his men, remember. He's described as a man who seemed to commandeer the air from the room and dispense it at his will to those present. Wherever Isaac was, he was the center. Few words left his lips, but his mere presence spoke volumes. Michael Sellis writes of Isaac Komnenos, One look at the man was to inspire respect. I told you there were some flattering things besides just crusty general. So, the rebellion didn't instantly kick off that night, though. The conspiracy did, but not the rebellion. And this is really important here. It's an important distinction to make. But what I find most interesting about this little interview, as Celis called it, between Comnenos and Michael VI, is that even after Comnenos was sent unceremoniously out of the emperor's presence, Isaac, fuming still. I mean, the man is powerful. He's just been disrespected. You don't disrespect a man like that, especially with an army at his back. But Isaac convinced his fellow officers and closest advisors to take another shot at gaining the emperor's favor in the hopes that maybe a future plea might be more fruitful for the armies out there on the fringes of the empire. Celis writes, quote, Indeed, the effect produced by this tragical event on the soldiers' morale was nothing less than shattering. Yet... Although the seeds of disaffection were sowed there, no immediate attempt was made to seize power. A second interview was tried first, in the hope that the emperor might prove more friendly. But when they asked him for bread, he offered them stones. When they protested, even the stones were refused. They were repelled and rejected. The others were all for immediate action. They were almost prepared to lay violent hands upon him there and then and to tear him down from his throne, but Isaac restrained them. There was a need, he said, for wiser counsel. Nevertheless, from that moment, the conspiracy was afoot and they began the search for a leader, some man capable of governing the empire." End quote. Oh my gosh, can we just stop and take a look at Michael, Michael Sellos' writing? It's actually a lot of fun to read. So if you have a chance, look up Chronographia by Michael Sellos. And I'm telling you, it's it's so much fun to read. It's not what you would think uh, an old 1,900-whatever-900-year-old 900, 900 document would read like. It is, it's almost like a novel. It's great. But who might this person be? Let's get back on track here. Sorry. Who might this person be? One thing that Michael Sellis writes caught me just a bit off guard, though. In Book 7 of his Chronographia, he tells us of a secret plan long held among the military elite. A plan existed since the death of Basil II that shed light on how those in military saw the civil world. And it points out their view that every time a military, military leader became emperor, Things improved around the empire, and when civilians took power, things earned were quickly squandered and lost. Sellis writes, quote, Even before this time, it had been the ambition of the military to subjugate the whole of the Roman Empire, to serve a soldier emperor and break down the civil succession to the principate. But hitherto these designs were kept secret, their fond designs were cherished only in private, for the simple reason that nobody seemed competent to rule." End quote. He tells us that, though this plan was cherished and dreamed about, even they knew that a mind like, say, Basil II's, which could, not easily, but certainly, manage expectations of a battlefield as well as an empire, well, those kind of minds were few and far in between. But as Sellis admits, things in 1057 had changed drastically. He says, quote, They saw Isaac at the head of a revolutionary party. They saw him personally taking the decisions necessary to its success. The time for compromise was now over. Without more ado, adherents rallied to his side, strongly equipped and provided for the exigencies of war. End quote. The drums of war began to be felt in nearly the entirety of the eastern forces of the empire, those under Isaac Comnenos' control, among many other companies and units, scattered around Cappadocia. After refusing the role of leader of this revolutionary army, that is, Isaac Komnenos was chosen by all involved as the only real leader of such a campaign. Cellus continues, quote, Considering that this was the first time he had commanded such an expedition, Isaac's conduct of the revolt showed more wisdom than boldness. End quote. And set to work, he did. Now, situated just south of Constantinople, near the city of Nicaea, his forces began amassing almost immediately. News traveled fast around the empire. I mean, all things considered, a thousand years ago. News did travel fast. And before he knew it, within a week his ranks had swelled from already existing soldiers as well as men showing up to join the rebellion. Isaac used them wisely. But before any moves were made, Isaac and his officers and advisors gathered as much information as they could in order to make all the necessary decisions such a campaign would require. No detail was too small. And these are the things you and I simply overlook when looking at major expeditions like this one. For instance, Cellos says, quote, he settled the amounts of rations required for the campaign by each soldier and the equipment sufficient for a military expedition. Promotions were made, the higher ranks being assigned to the better soldiers and the lower to the others. The nights he spent in ceaseless vigil over the affairs of state, while in the daytime, his brilliant direction was more evident still. The army was strictly disciplined, end quote. According to Sellis, who, as you can see, lays the whole thing out in some pretty decent detail, Isaac began his campaign against Emperor Michael VI by cutting off all roads leading into and out of Constantinople and surrounding towns. Cut them off. Like William would in roughly a decade up in England, Comnenos set up checkpoints at each crossroad and town entrance, stocked with soldiers to keep order, while the campaign continued. They weren't full-on Mott and Baileys or full castles like William did, but the effect was still very, very evident. Sellis writes, His next move was to exact the public taxes. This was not done in any hurried or confused manner, but roles were drawn up. Honest tax gatherers appointed and separate entries made in, in the accounts, so that when he was officially made emperor, he might have accurate records of the revenues." End quote. In addition to all that, Isaac also distributed his new soldiers evenly, with more experienced soldiers alongside them, to keep everyone cool and collected. He couldn't risk a single checkpoint to be compromised, especially not due to inexperience. And with all of this, Isaac slowly made his way to just outside the gates of Constantinople. A slow march. He knew he had it. He knew he had time. However, as if it was yet another slap to the face, Michael VI had done, Isaac found, he had done absolutely nothing in the face of the threat against him. Cellus writes, quote, "...the emperor's jurisdiction was confined to Byzantium alone." Yet he took no countermeasures to check his daring opponents, nor did his former advisors make any effort to stop the rebels. You would have believed that no state of emergency existed at all. What's more, no attempt was made to pit against the enemy what forces were left to the emperor. No action, whatever, was taken to break up the revolutionary army." I mean, Celis continues, but we'll end it here for now. Isaac Komnenos, the reluctant rebel leader, was waiting at the gates of Constantinople while yet another emperor pompously thought himself invincible merely by the presence of some gold on his head. My, how arrogant and foolish our leaders can be. On the next episode, we see the culmination of this little rebellion, and more importantly, we see an entire empire pivot. Until next time.